This week, battling unproven stem cell treatments in Italy. So when the, the country is in danger, it is, I think, scientists' duty, really, to stand up and help. And scientists zoom in on disease-causing genes in Greenlanders. Here we have a single mutation that actually explains more than 10% of all cases of type 2 diabetes in the population. This mutation has a much stronger effect than it's ever been seen before. Plus we take a cold look at Newton's gravitational constant, Big G. This is the Nature Podcast for June the 19th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. The stamina method is a stem cell-based treatment targeted at patients with serious conditions ranging from Parkinson's disease to coma. Behind it is an organisation called the Stamina Foundation, set up in 2007 by entrepreneur Davide Vanoni. Vanoni has published no convincing evidence that his therapy is effective or even safe. But that hasn't stopped Italian politicians and the public from demanding it be made available. In the last few years, the foundation's method has been approved for use in an Italian hospital, but shut down again for safety concerns. A small but determined group of scientists in Italy has been fighting to outlaw the unproven stamina method. Their actions look to be working. Earlier this year, stamina's founder was charged with fraud by an Italian public prosecutor. A judge will now determine whether the case will go to trial. Vanoni maintains his innocence and says his technique helps patients. One of the scientists battling the foundation is Elena Catagno, a stem cell researcher from the University of Milan. She has written a comment piece for Nature about their campaign. I got her take on being part of a crusade like this. But first, with more context on Vanoni's technique, here's Nature reporter Alison Abbott, who's been reporting on the Stamina Foundation for years. He extracts what he calls mesenchymal stem cells from the bone marrow of the patient and injects them back into that patient. The concept being that these stem cells would somehow target whatever is wrong. They would target the site of injury, wherever it is. That sounds conceptually very simple, um, but I know and you know that stem cells are quite complicated. Uh, does he have any evidence for this approach? No, he doesn't have convincing evidence, and this is, this is essentially the, the heart of the matter. And Eleanor, when did you first come across the Stamina Foundation? We first became aware of the Stamina case in uh, August uh, 2012 uh, when uh, patients went uh, into courts uh, claiming their right to get the so-called Stamina method. The safety and the efficacy of this treatment had not been established, but patients were still campaigning to have it. How did you and your colleagues in the scientific field become involved in this case? Well, when we read on newspaper about this case, I mean, uh, and uh, and of course we we dig into the situation, and uh, we realized that there was no science and no medicine behind. So this is a non-medical foundation. The president uh, is a professor of humanities, and has no knowledge, no expertise, no track record. Uh, we realized that the country was in danger. So starting from August 2012, we spent a huge amount of time talking to colleagues first to engage them into this uh, battle. And then, uh, uh, of course, patients, students, and above all, politicians, because we wanted to make them aware 
that uh, uh, this situation had, no- had nothing to do with science and medicine. What stage was it where you decided that you should be the one and you and your colleagues should be the ones who fight this? Because this has taken a lot of your time up. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I think we realised that um, no one in the institutions, uh, even in the political chambers, uh, uh, realised how dangerous this situation was. So since February 2013, I would say that 90% of my time and many others really went into this story because we realized that politicians were not consulting scientists. And we started talking almost every day, preparing dossiers for the politicians and uh, scanning uh, web pages uh, and Facebook pages, uh, looking for connections. And how would you counsel other scientists who might find themselves in a position where they want to stand up against, you know, someone who hasn't got the evidence perhaps behind them and in favour of accumulating scientific evidence, having proof for things like this? Probably the first message is uh, never to succumb to the feeling that uh, you had done everything you would be expected to do. They have to spend uh, their time into this and consider that this is time well spent because this is part of your own experiment. You cannot stay in your lab and thinking at your uh, stem cell differentiation protocol while outside your lab all this mess is going on. It would be like uh, disregarding uh, the, the dignity of your work. So when the, the country is in danger, it is, I think, scientists' duty really to stand up and uh, help. And back to you, Alison Abbott. Some commentators point out that this isn't a serious issue just for Italy, but more widely, because if the treatment is seen to be authorised in an EU country, it will open the door to similar therapies proliferating elsewhere. So what's your view on what happens next? Is this the thin end of the wedge or is it, is it more likely that in Italy at least this will be stamped out? I think it's likely that this will be stamped out in Italy. Uh, the commercial value of these therapies, these unregula- unregulated therapies, is so great that I think efforts will continue to be made for some time yet to try and loosen regulations. That was Nature reporter Alison Abbott and before her Elena Catania of the University of Milan. Read Elena's comment piece at nature.com slash news. Coming up in the research highlights, arachnid chastity belts and a new role for the love hormone. But first, for scientists wanting to study how genes affect our risk of disease, less can be more. Traditionally, such studies use large populations, tens to hundreds of thousands of people. But there's hidden value in eyeing up smaller, isolated populations. Small populations can look quite different genetically from the group they came from, just because of the variation they take with them. And disease-causing mutations that were rare in the original group can become quite common in offshoot groups, which means you potentially only need a few individuals to discover a mutation that confers a big risk. This week, a team of scientists has zoomed in on the Greenlandic population. Although it's a huge island, Greenland is home to a small founder population that was historically isolated for thousands of years. 
But in the past 25 years, Greenland has witnessed a very modern trend, a large increase in type 2 diabetes, a disease which develops when the body doesn't produce enough insulin, causing glucose to build up in the blood. I called author Anders Albrechtsen from the University of Copenhagen's Bioinformatics Centre. To start with, I asked him about this dramatic rise in cases. During the last about 25 years, there's been a large increase in type 2 diabetes, which we think is mainly due to the new diet or the modern diet. So traditional diet in Greenland has been meat and protein and fat, while now we have a Western diet up there. So that's why we think it has a a large increase in type 2 diabetes. So you looked at the genes of thousands of Greenlandic people. And, and how do you collect a sample from a place as big as Greenland? Well, this is actually really, really hard because you can't just ask people to go to the local clinic. So for 10 years, people actually sailed along the coast of Greenland and asked all the small villages to participate in these studies here. So they would come up to the ship or if there was a local clinic and actually collect the samples. So this was a very extensive work. And once you'd collected all your data, what did you find? So when looking at about 10% of the whole population, uh, we found a single mutation that actually has a really large effect on type 2 diabetes and actually has such a large effect that if you have two versions of that mutation, one version from your mother and got the other one from your father, then you have a more than 50% chance of getting type 2 diabetes, which is much larger than the effects we usually see when looking at other populations. And what type of physiological effect does this mutation have? So basically, it, uh, when you, you eat something, then it's really good to remove the sugar from the blood really fast. This uh, mutation resides in a gene that actually affects another protein. So, and this protein actually transports glucose out of the blood. So when you have this mutation, then the protein transporting the glucose out of the blood is not in an active form. So it's not in the membrane, but it's floating in, inside the cell, which doesn't make it active at all. And you carried out muscle biopsies. Presumably you saw less of this protein in the muscles of people with that mutation. Yes, in the muscle tissue, the mutation has an effect. So if you have two versions of the mutation, then there is none of the functioning protein inside the muscle cells. And thus, it gives a higher uh, glucose uh, blood levels for the individuals with the mutation. And what percentage of the population had this mutation? If you look at Greenland, if you take the individuals that are almost uh, 100% Inuit, so without any European admixture, then it has an allele frequency about 24%. And about 4% of the individuals actually have two versions or two uh, copies of this mutation. And these are the individuals that are really affected strongly with uh, this mutation. How do you think this mutation has evolved? There are two possibilities. Either it became really common because that's such a small population. So genetic drift is really important so that the allele frequency changes rapidly through time. But it could, could also be that this mutation was under a recent selection or a selection through lots of years. Because of the extreme environment and the extreme diet in the Greenlanders traditionally, then it could be that there is a selective pressure acting on this gene. And we do see some evidence of that, but it's still not completely conclusive. How is this study different to all of the other studies that look at how genes affect uh, disease, in particular type 2 diabetes? Most of the studies we know are from European or Asian uh, cohorts. 
And here we find a lot of genes, a lot of mutations that has a very small effect on type 2 diabetes. So this differs a lot because here we have a single mutation that actually explains more than 10% of all cases of type 2 diabetes in a population, which is quite extreme. But this also means uh, that this mutation has a much stronger effect than, than it's ever been seen before, which makes it very interesting to study. That was Anders Albrechtson from the University of Copenhagen. Still to come, we take a cold look at Isaac Newton's gravitational constant. But first, it's time for the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. Competitive male spiders block their lovers' genitals with their own form of chastity belt, a plug. To defend against rival sperm and make sure they're the father, males produce a liquid that solidifies in the female's genital opening. Now, researchers have found these plugs are more effective the older and bigger they are. A Germany-based team looked at plugs made by the common European dwarf spider. The longer sex lasted, the larger the plug they left behind. The longer the plug was inside before the second male came along, the less soft it became, lowering the competitor's chance of success. Read more in Behavioural Ecology and Sociobiology. Oxytocin, the love hormone? Think again. New research shows the chemical involved in social bonding also helps old muscles to rejuvenate. Researchers in California injected oxytocin into old mice. After an injury, the mouse muscles regenerated at a similar level to the muscles in young mice. Oxytocin activates a signalling pathway in muscle stem cells, which boosts the cell's proliferation. When the team engineered mice to lack oxytocin, their muscles couldn't repair themselves as well and the mice lost more muscle tissue compared with normal mice of the same age. The authors say oxytocin could be used as a drug to combat muscle ageing in the elderly. Find that paper in Nature Communications. Galileo really wanted to understand gravity. In 1589, according to some sources at least, he dropped objects of varying mass off the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa in a quest to better understand the force. Now, 450 years after his birth, researchers in neighbouring Florence are continuing his work, though they've replaced the Leaning Tower with a lab full of ultra-cold atoms. A sticking point with gravity is how to measure something called Big G, the gravitational constant. This is basically a number which, when plugged into equations, helps scientists understand the universe. Big G is fundamental to the workings of the universe, from the way that planets move in solar systems to the interaction of elementary particles. It may come as a bit of a surprise, then, that for something so important, scientists are unsure of the value of Big G. This elusive value is what physicist Guglielmo Tino and his team at the University of Florence are trying to work out – and they think they've found a new measuring method which could give us an answer. Noah Baker spoke to Guglielmo, asking him how Big G has caused such big problems. That's really surprising, and it's a little bit of a shame for a physicist. We know numbers for the other constants with 10, 11 digits, while for this constant that is one of the first physical constants that were introduced, Still, the precision is so low that we can only give, uh, let's say, four digits. And, and why is it so hard to measure? Gravitational interaction compared to other interactions is extremely weak. So we are trying to measure a force which is extremely small. The other um, problem is that gravity cannot be shielded. 
you know, for uh, electric field or magnetic field, you can put a shield around your apparatus, for example. Uh, this cannot be done with gravitational interaction. There is no shield. So, we are, again, we are measuring such a small effect with high, trying to get a high precision while all the surrounding masses are affecting our apparatus. In the past, how have people tried to, to measure the gravitational constant? Most of the experiments have been done taking two big masses, like two balls of uh, gold, and measuring with what is called a torsion balance. Essentially, it's a balance that is used to measure the force between these uh, balls. And from the measurement of the force and measuring the distance between the masses and the uh, mass of the masses themselves, you can extract the uh, gravitational constant uh, value. So how is your approach different from, from that used in the past? While uh, in most of the other experiments, the two masses were macroscopic objects, in our case, uh, the probe of the gravitational field is a microscopic probe as small as uh, an atom. This allows us to use um, a method based on quantum mechanics that is uh, atom interferometry. Now, this is a particularly complicated method, um, but you have churned up an interesting number which doesn't necessarily correlate with some of the other numbers in the past. Yes. In fact, the problem of this uh, constant is that when different um, laboratories measure the same quantity, big G, they usually give uh, numbers which are not consistent with each other, which is quite strange in physics because our scientific method is based on the fact that different laboratories must be able to make the same experiment and uh, find consistent results. So what makes you sure that the value that you've got now is more accurate than values that have been generated in the past? First of all, um, when we have uh, this situation that I was describing where different laboratories give uh, inconsistent values uh, among each other, this means that there are what we call systematic uh, errors uh, that are not uh, well understood. And when you cannot identify these errors, what you can do is just to make the experiment in a different way, so that even if there are systematic errors, they are different from the others. And comparing the results, you can try and identify <clears throat> where the errors are. So our experiment is considered somehow important because it's the first time in which the big G is measured as I was saying, with a probe, which is not a macroscopic object, but it's um, made of a cloud of ultra-cold atoms. And what's next for your lab? Do you continue to try to increase this accuracy over time? I have ideas on how to improve on these results, but I think that to have a significant, a substantial improvement, we should use a, a different apparatus with the same idea, basic idea, but uh, probably different atoms and different source mass. That was Guglielmo Tino at the University of Florence. Finally this week, News Chief David Ray joins me in the studio for the news chat. Welcome, David. Hi, Thea. The first story you've got for us today follows the Terracotta Army. It does, yeah. Actually, two stands to this story. So this is a, the, the PEG is a study done on the Terracotta Army, which I think we all know is the, the sort of famous um, sculpted figures of lots of thousands of soldiers in, in China. 
And archaeologists have obviously long been looking at this since it was discovered in 1974. And now a, a team in, in UCL in London has discovered that if you take simple digital pictures of these uh, soldiers, you can actually produce 3D models, which you can then use to compare them against each other. And a long-standing myth of the Telecoptal armies, are the soldiers modelled on individuals or are they just sort of, you know, factually made, if you like? They take a lot of pictures of the uh, soldier's head, for example, and then one thing they've found to check up, uh, in particular what they're looking at to find out if they are individually sculpted, is they're concentrating on the ears. So they're taking 3D images of the or making 3D images of the head using these pictures run via a, a sort of software program, and then they can print them out, they can superimpose one ear over another one and find out the differences between them to see if, if all, you know, each of these thousands of soldiers did actually have individual ears moulded, which would indicate that they were actually modelled on individual soldiers and not just sort of one, you know, general genetic model. So why bother with 3D printing? Why can't scientists just, just look at the model that's in front of them? Well, this is the, the second part of the story. So this is archaeologists obviously generally have to use um, artefacts that they have, that they've excavated or that they've, they've found in the example of the Terracotta Army. But if you can build a digital version of that artefact, think how useful that's going to be. You can send it to people, you can, you can share it, you can manipulate it, you can do whatever you like to try and study it. And uh, in the example of the Terracotta Army, this is fantastically useful because they can do this with individual ears, having just taken some pictures, basically, and, and compare the soldiers in the same way you could do the same thing with bones, with tools, with whole excavation sites, if you have suitable 3D pictures of them. And earlier this week in the nature offices, one of those ears circulated around our desks. Tell us what it told scientists um, about that army. Absolutely. Well, the first thing they told them is how quickly they can go from taking a picture in China to generating this um, fleetly printed model of an ear. And on the back of that, you can do work that you could only have otherwise done in situ, which meant staying in China or actually taking... Um, uh, a soldier back to the UK and obviously China very rarely lets any of these soldiers leave its shores. What about the downsides? I mean, sharing this data? Yeah, that's, that's one of the big downsides of it. I mean, obviously these physical collections are very tightly controlled by museums. Archaeologists have to apply for permission to look at them or whatever. But if these are digital artefacts, then that sort of level of control is, is, is severely limited and the museums can't control it as tightly as they'd like to. So there is a risk that this information could go to places where it's not wanted and uh, it could be picked up by you know, people who sell fossils, for example, so they can remake copies of fossils and, and sell them and this kind of thing. So there is a, a slight danger, and actually one of our experts in the piece calls for consoles on, on how this might be done in the future. OK, I'm moving to your second story about a travelling seed. Yeah, and I think travelling is a bit of an understatement with this. This is a seed that's travelled 18,000 kilometres uh, some millions of years ago in what is, we think, the, the sort of record-breaking example of plant seed dispersal. Plants would normally use wind and things to disperse their seeds, but we think in this case a, a bird has picked up the seed and transferred it from Hawaii uh, to Reunion Island, which is, as I said, 18,000 kilometres away across oceans and uh, and a continent in between as well. And for years no one knew about this, and the study just published has, has said that they are exactly, well, bar one small mutation which has happened since the tree arrived in Reunion, they are the same species. And how did they find out about this seed? Yeah, well, this is a genetic analysis and the history of the koa tree, as it's known, the acacia koa tree in, in Hawaii. It originated in, in Australia and uh, probably started growing in, in Hawaii about the time those islands were formed volcanically about five million years ago. What happened then, the, the trees sort of slightly diverged evolutionarily and sometime in the meantime, a seed no one quite knows how uh, it got to the Indian Ocean. I think the, the best possible theory is that it was brought by a bird, uh, germinated on the Union Island and continued the species there. And obviously when you think of this, this is two islands, two specks in the ocean, thousands of miles away, and the chance of this happening were very small. 
and more importantly about plant ecology is if you think basically plants generally colonise areas around them, not thousands of miles away. And how long do researchers think it took to travel that distance? Don't know. I mean, if it had been a bird, it probably would have been a matter of months. But the date they are more certain about is that they know this uh, this tree started growing in the Union Island about 1.4 million years ago. So there was a gap of you know around about 3.7 or something uh, million years in, in between it getting there and first growing in Hawaii. So they know roughly when it happened, but how it happened, the bird theory is quite strong, and in which case it would have been a, you know, certainly within a bird's lifetime if it would say stuck to the bird. But um, other than that, they, they don't really know at the moment. How likely do you think, or do researchers think, it is that other trees and plants that are seemingly growing as normal in places around the world are the result of, of massive dispersal over long distances? Yeah, this is kind of the second half of our story, actually, what's called biogeography and how species got to where they are. And <clears throat> I think the, the quotes that we've got from our experts are basically that this is chance and, and luck, serendipity play a far larger part in dispersal of, of species than we actually thought. And if you think about the millions of years that it's taken all these species to evolve, that actual chance, what seemed like a slim chance, actually gets a lot larger over such a long period of time. So yes, this has happened before. I mean, for example, um, flat-nosed monkeys have gone from Africa to South America a few million years ago. That happened on, on lafts, the monkeys making little boats for themselves. Uh, lots of other examples of, of plants and also smaller amphibians especially, uh, moving from one continent to another or certainly from island to island. Thanks, David. Remember, you can read more on those stories at nature.com news. That's it for this week and we'll be nosying in next week at Power Couples in Science. Hear the gossip here first. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. <laughs>